Part of the Rewatching Good Television Podcast Network. It's the Sorkin Cast. Here's your host, Matthew Murdick. And welcome to the Sorkin Cast. It's episode 41 of the podcast. This week we're covering season 2, episode 14, The War at Home. My name is Matt Murdick, and I am from sorkincast.wordpress.com. That's where you can find all of the back episodes of the podcast. You can find contact links, podcatcher links, and if you would take the time to leave me a review on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever podcatcher you use, then I would very much appreciate it. A written review will get you a thanks in our upcoming feedback episode as long as you leave the review by the 12th of July, 2016. And the week following that, we will have the feedback podcast where I will thank you. That's also your deadline for anything regarding Season 2 of The West Wing or just observations about this podcast in general if you want to share those with me. Uh, easy way to send all of that to me would be by emailing sorkincast at gmail.com or you can tweet at sorkincast on Twitter or you can leave a voicemail by calling the listener line 314-669-1840. Also, the 12th of July, 2016 is your deadline to nominate your favorite and least favorites for our West Wing Season 2 awards. Uh, the categories are favorite and least favorite episode, favorite and least favorite scene, favorite and least favorite main character, and favorite and least favorite guest star for all of Season 2. So give that some thought and submit me your suggestions or your nominations uh, for those awards again by July 12, 2016. That's enough about the podcast. Let's get into talking about this episode. Again, Season 2, Episode 14, The War at Home. It was written by Aaron Sorkin, directed by Christopher Missiano. It first aired on February 28th of 2001 and was viewed by an estimated 18.4 million viewers. Geos.tv, that's the Global Episode Opinion Survey, they ranked this episode 40th out of 158 possible episodes, and I would definitely put it in the top third echelon myself. Here is your episode summary. A mission to rescue DEA hostages goes bad, resulting in a difficult question about how to proceed next. Toby has to fight off political resistance to the State of the Union speech. Josh gets disappointing poll results from Joey, and Abby and Jed have a conversation about the future. Now, last week I wasn't able to do a walk and talk or a quick jabs. That's not the case this week. This week we have, first of all, the walk and talk. That's where people are zooming throughout the halls and the cameras following them around as they talk. Um, this one follows Toby with Sam and then with CJ. Have a listen. It's not going to happen. Toby, it's not going to happen. We got enough input from him during the six weeks we were writing the thing. I don't need to hear his... He's very upset. What? I know. Or I think than we calculated he was going to be. We've upset him. Yeah. Well, we're going to have to learn to live with that pain. Look, he's not the president of the United States. He's a junior senator from North Dakota where nobody lives. Because it's too cold and they don't have a major sports franchise. Do I need to lay out the ways in which this man is important to us? No. 
He is adored by the left. Stop laying out the ways. He's our link to the environmentalists. Stop laying out the ways. Toby, asking for this meeting isn't out of line, and you should take it. In fact, you should take it tomorrow morning at 7.30 at the Hyatt. You set it up already? Just the time and place. And you expect me to explain myself to him? Yes. Yes, I do. Fine. Toby. See you, Jane. 7.30. The Post is calling it sleek, challenging, and oftentimes witty, not unlike myself. Who is Jack Sloan, and why am I just hearing about this now? Sloan was one of the invited guests. He was the police officer. The one we stuck in over the weekend? Yeah. What happened? A long time ago, he was cited by the Detroit Police Department for excessive force. Against the black suspect? Yeah. CJ. Toby. How was this guy not vetted? Because he wasn't, because it was last minute. What are you doing about it? Mark Godfrey's going to interview him in the morning. That's a bad idea. Why? Why? Yes. Because blacks aren't going to react well to our supporting a brutal cop. He's not a brutal cop. Says you. Says me, a grand jury, two judges, the district attorney, and common sense. CJ. He's going public anyway, Toby. Godfrey got the story on his own. Fine. Where's Josh? He went back to the phone banks. Is electricity back on? No. Then what's he doing there? Hoping the electricity goes on. Well, that ought to do it. And just like there seems to always be a walk and talk in an episode, there's also a lot of little jabs that people make at each other or about situations. And those are what we call the quick jabs. They're just little comical statements. Have a listen at those. Mr. President. Yeah. You understand we've got heating inside, right? This isn't cold. It's crisp. No, it's cold. Well, you're a big wussy. That aside, what do you make of Donna being the one pushing? I don't make anything. You wouldn't think she'd be jealous? She goes out with guys, are you jealous? No. See? I don't get jealous. So? I don't like it and usually do everything within my considerable capabilities to sabotage it. Yes. Which is why it's curious that Donna would do nothing to discourage and, in fact, do everything to encourage a date with Joey Lucas, who, quite frankly, is a very attractive woman. Josh? Yeah. You know, your voice just got really high at the end of that. Yeah, sorry. You have to do something for me. Arrange another introduction? You have to arrange another introduction. Last night you were scared to meet him. And I'm still scared to meet him, but I'll overcome that in order to erase the humiliation that I've brought upon myself and my father. You were just in your own little Euripides play over there, aren't you? You want me to hold the phone for a while? I can hold the phone. Take the phone. Give me the phone. Why are you trying to fix me up with Joey Lucas? I think you'd make a nice couple. Fine. If you got married, you'd be Joshua and Josephine Lucas Lyman. You wouldn't have to get your towels remonogrammed. How are you doing, Ainsley? My mouth is dry, my hands are moist, and I have to pee. Okay. Hey, you ready? Yes. You sure? Yes. Let's go. Call it off. Here we go. No, really. Ainsley? I'll meet him another time. What other time? Better time. What's a better time? Tomorrow. Don't you have to absolve yourself of the humiliation visited on your family and the house of Atreus? Yes, but I believe I'm going to compound the humiliation. It'll never happen. Really? No, it probably will. I checked outside. I thought you'd be having a cigarette. Let me tell you something, Leo. After heroin and cocaine, tobacco is next. Great. Another criminal empire we can give birth to. There'll be speakeasies all over Chicago where you can get smuggled cartons of Marlboro Lights. Good stuff there. Funny stuff there. It's time to start talking about the episode, and we'll start by introducing our first clip where the president gives a go order for a rescue mission in Columbia. CJ works out a deal to get the Officer Sloan story out in the open. Josh and Donna talk about the polling. Bartlett 
and Leo talk about Abby and the operation. Then Bartlett asks for help on a new drug policy from Josh and Sam, and Toby takes some heat from a Democratic senator about the State of the Union address. We know if we keep talking, we're not running the risk of these hostages getting shot during a rescue. What difference does it make if they're shot during a rescue or at Frente Command at Villa Sereno? I believe we can keep them alive longer if we let them be taken to Villa Sereno. Are we going to keep them alive longer, or is it just going to seem longer? Sir? I've been given reason to believe they'll be tortured at Villa Sereno. They're U.S. drug agents. They know things these people want to know. Sir, the C-141's approaching Colombian airspace. You said 20 minutes. It's now 40 minutes. It's not midnight everywhere in the world, Mark. What's the story? He's innocent. You just decided? No, a grand jury, a DA, and a civil court judge decided 17 years ago. Nobody brought charges, and the civil suit was dismissed. Then why on his record? The Detroit Police Department cited him for excessive force to calm down the black community. It was a robbery. They were climbing through windows and jumping over walls. The guy's leg was already fractured when Sloan got there. He's going to do your show tomorrow morning. Is he doing everybody else's show, too? No. Why not? Because you waited 40 minutes. Let's pack it in. We'll start over tomorrow night. Why? It's already 9.30 in California. The power isn't on. We're missing half the window. Joey, pack it in. Okay. Folks, we'll start over tomorrow night. See ya. Take it easy. Good night. So you have to wait another day. I'm not good at waiting. No kidding. Donna. Why do you expect our internal polling to be any different than any other polling? We've got dial groups. We've got CNN, USA Today. We've got Gallup. Why is our poll going to be any different? We're asking different questions. I'll get your coat. By the way, right there, back when she said see ya, that was a sign. You're fired. Impervious. Yeah. Abby's pretty pissed at me. How bad? Pretty bad. King's Night 3. You know, I have this image in my mind of the dead soldiers coming back from Vietnam. The caskets coming off the plane, but I don't know from where. Television? The caskets coming off the plane? Yeah. Are they down? Yeah. Delta's landed in Trace Encinas. Alpha moved out, and they'll be in Villa Sereno at 0700, where they wait. Yeah. I inherited a war on drugs from a president who inherited it from a president who inherited it from a president before that. I'm not 100% sure who we're fighting, but I know we're not winning. Somewhere between 50 and 85% of the prison population has a drug or alcohol abuse problem. We've tried. Just say no. I don't think it's going to work. I'm mentioning this because I'd like you to give me any thoughts you might have on the subject. Thank you, Mr. President. Thank you, sir. Oh, you think this is a joke? You think I won't publicly condemn a member of my party? The president's not a member of your party. He's the leader of your party. And if you think demonizing people who are trying to govern responsibly is the way to protect our liberal base, then speaking as a liberal, go to bed. Would you please, seniors, environmentalists, African-Americans, you tell me which you think has a greater chance of happening. My reform bill getting passed? Or the president getting reelected without the three groups I just mentioned? You just named three groups that will never desert the president. Not unless I run as a third party candidate, no. Oh, those 18 votes are looking a little bigger now, aren't they, you patronizing son of a bitch? I was just thinking about this cartoon I once saw. A bunch of tiny fish are swimming through the leaves of a plant, but then one of the fish realizes it's not a plant, it's the tentacles of a predator, and the fish says, 
With friends like this, who needs anemones? Come at us from the left, and I'm gonna own your ass. I guess first I want to talk about CJ since this part right here that's included in this first clip, it's really the only time we'll hear from her significantly till the end. I also cut out the talk with Officer Sloan because it was more or less just her coaching him about the interview that she sets up here in this clip. But again, while everything is running haywire and helter-skelter everywhere else, she's staying focused on her job and she's doing it quietly and successfully. While the Sloan thing is definitely going to be a part of at least this next day's news cycle, she's doing what she told Sloan she would do in the prior episode. She's at least managing to control the story. And by giving it to the Capitol Beat host exclusively, she's also mending that fence and hoping that he will keep that in mind now or in the future. Because CJ is typically pretty good at this stuff, except maybe when it comes to Danny because of personal feelings. But she's usually good at at rewarding journalists that work with her on things rather than uh, against her on things. And, of course, that's probably not as easy to do in today's world of instant news, right? Uh, Where you get a lot of sources coming from all over the place almost all at once via Twitter or whatever. Um, It's much more difficult to contain a story like this than it would have been even just 15 years ago. But I'm still betting that occasionally deals are between like the press corps and the White House are being made from time to time. And speaking of people who don't have much to do in this episode, really, this clip is Toby's only really significant scene in the episode. I mean, he does make an appearance or two in later clips, but... He's just uh, not much present in this episode, but they do still show him taking heat about the speech, which is very interesting, seeing the whole left uh, coming at him. Now, the actor who plays the senator, Ed Begley Jr., he's another one of those really recognizable actors who appears on a lot of shows. You don't recognize him so much because of the fact that he has big roles, but again, just because he works so often. You might remember him from Veronica Mars, or you might remember him more recently from like Arrested Development, or even Better Call Saul. But the guy, not really unlike the actor playing Sloan, I mean, he's got tons of acting credits on his IMDb page, like close to 300, I think. And here he plays a clearly disgusted with Toby, card-carrying liberal very well. And I had to cut a lot of the arguments that he actually made to Toby for time, but all of the issues that disturbed Abby were pretty much brought up in this breakfast that they had. What you have to love about Toby is how when Sam had told him to meet with Gillette, Toby didn't even feel like it was worth his time. And even here in this breakfast, he's being as polite as he can be. But when it comes down to it, and, and threats start getting thrown around by this senator. I mean, he pretty much squashes the bug before it crawls up his leg, right? Because Toby is in re-election campaign mode. And he doesn't really have time to deal with people coming at him from the left. Um, it's the right, of course, that has his focus now. And, and that's the middle ground is, is the vote he's trying to woo. But what I love most is the fact that back in the flashbacks of the two gunmen episode, 
We saw him tell people that he was very good at campaigning, even though he hadn't won an election yet. And, and here, we're really just getting the tip of the iceberg of seeing that potential really being unleashed. In fact, I guess we've already seen it unleashed in, in tactics before. But there's a difference of attitude here because he's really suiting up for the big boys. Sam had said he should consider what Gillette had to say because Sam sometimes comes at Toby from the left himself. And most of the time, I think Toby's fine with that. But, I mean, this isn't recess appointments. This isn't about legislation at all, in fact. I mean, Toby is orchestrating the communications department of the White House to deliver a message to the right that he will win. He will woo the middle vote. Whether that costs him senators or whatever, he he understands that he's in charge of running the most important game of in town right now, which is for the presidency. At least as far as Toby's concerned, it seems to be the most important game in town. And because of that, a junior senator isn't going to get much attention from him as far as like big picture stuff goes. And once again, at least in this case, Gillette is a bug and Toby is the boot heel. I think Toby ultimately is taking this meeting only because Sam did set it up. And let's not forget that Toby is probably still trying to mend things with Sam a little bit for the way that he kind of did the drop-in line just a couple episodes back. And Gillette even calls Toby out on that drop-in. So you have to figure that both Sam and Toby knew that that would be the case. And so Toby decided to take it on the chin more or less as long as he could uh, because he felt like he'd ruined Sam's speech and he's probably more sorry about that than he is about the fact that he did drop the line in or what the drop-in line actually said. Now, real quickly about Josh and Donna here, and we'll, we'll get more on the poll questions and, and really the, the question of why Donna is pushing to Josh towards Joey so hard in future clips. But I, I did want to set all that up. And I did find the whole Donna feeling impervious uh, to being fired thing cute. It's just one of those dot Josh Donna things. So I put that in there. Now, as for the Bartlett breakfast with Josh and Sam, I mean, this is a somewhat isolated scene from the rest of the story until you get maybe to the very end of the episode. And I, I felt that this was almost kind of a continuation of the dialogue that Sorkin opened up in season one in the mandatory minimums episode. I mean, Bartlett is kind of the speaking puppet for a view about treatment versus criminalization in regards to drugs. And I, I found it kind of odd that Bartlett and Sorkin would revisit this issue when I it seemed like they had worked a game plan out for it already, more or less, um, in the Mandatory Minimums episode. I suppose you could say that it tells us that no progress has been made for this White House on that front, but I almost suspect that because it is a drug lord that they are talking about in the Colombian situation, if it wasn't just an opportunity for Sorkin to kind of throw, you know, pontificate once on this particular issue again, uh, indirectly, or, or maybe even uh, Sorkin felt like he needed another stab at the approach of it. But either way, you can imagine that if no progress has been made, this whole situation probably would bring that back to the forefront for Bartlett. 
So it's not like it's really a character or a story mistake. I just found it a little odd. Again, the one way that it does function well in the episode that is that it does set up Leo's statements uh, in his conversation with Bartlett at the end of the episode. And of course, there's lots more of what happens to Bartlett in terms of both this rescue operation and Abby coming up. But the setup of negotiation versus action is actually thematically present in, in both of those situations when you think about it. Bartlett hears from the Secretary of State in this particular clip that they should continue to negotiate while Leo is pushing for action. And really, the whole going through with the State of the Union address in the form that it was finalized in and what kind of message that would deliver politically was a matter of action, you know, from the side of Toby and Leo and and most likely Bartlett himself, as opposed to, you know, talking to Abby about the fact that he might run again, uh, which would, of course, be its own kind of negotiation. And speaking about negotiation and Abby, uh, Bartlett tries in this second clip to talk to Abby about the speech. Josh and Donna get in-depth about the polling, Ainsley gets a second chance to meet the president, but it's cut short when the president finds out that the rescue mission he has authorized has failed. And finally, the Colombian president offers a solution to Bartlett that could be considered controversial. We didn't get a chance to talk again last night. I don't think we should. Talk? No. Ever? Oh, if wishing made it so, Jed. Look. I don't think it's a good idea for us to talk about this now. Why? Because you've got to focus on Columbia. I can do two things at once. You don't have two things at once. You have 92 things at once, and one of them is five hostages in Columbia. Yes, and I'd like to go about my day without this black cloud around me, so I'd like to talk now. And I'm saying this is a longer conversation than that, and I don't want you all over the place, and we could talk about it later, and you should focus. What are you, my Zen master? Can I be in charge of my own mind? Let me tell you something, jackass. Get as chippy as you want if that makes you feel better. I am your wife. I love you. You have a crisis. You have to deal with it. When it's done, we'll talk. So you never told me why this poll is different. Hmm? You never told me why you're interested in these particular numbers. There are five congressional districts that are concerning me. Which districts? Kentucky 3rd, that's Louisville. And Jefferson. Yeah, Louisiana 4th, Missouri 9th, Missouri 6th, and Ohio 12th. What's with those five districts? The president last night announced a crime package that would, among other things... Require a five-day waiting period for a background check. The five congressmen in those districts... Are sitting on the fence. Right. So you want to know how their crime package polled in those five districts? Yes. If it polled well, you've got your gun law. Probably. And if it tanked, you've got to shut up or lose five Democratic seats in the House. Why do you ask me the question when you're going to have the conversation all by yourself? Thank you. The power's back on. Excellent. Yes. What do we do now? We wait. Is he coming? He's stopping in on his way from the thing. How are you doing, Angelina? I'm concerned about peeing on your carpet. Okay. Well, now I am, too. Tell her it's going to be fine. Your skirt's on backwards. May I use the bathroom? Yes. Thank you. Ainsley. Hey. Good evening, Mr. President. Is she here? Ainsley Hayes? Yeah. Yes, sir. Where is she? Well, she's in the closet, Mr. President. Why? She thought it was a bathroom. Ainsley? Yes? Ainsley, why don't you come on out of there? How you doing? We met last night. You were singing and dancing in the bathroom. Yes, sir. Why were you in the closet? I had to pee. They won't let me smoke inside, but you can pee in Leo's closet. Mr. President. I appreciate you coming to work for me, Ainsley. You're an exceptionally bright young woman. Well, Gary. Is your father proud of you? Yes, sir. I bet he is. Listen. Mr. President. Sam. Damn it! 
sir. How the hell did that happen? It was bad intelligence. You think? Friend, they left behind the radio and a soldier at the outpost, and they were deliberately sending misinformation. We'd never anticipated the possibility that somebody might try that. Sir. We weren't prepared for someone to try and outfox us with a stratagem so sophisticated it's an entire generation beyond, hey, look, your shoelaces are untied. Is that how I just lost nine guys to a damn street gang with a ham radio? They lured us there so that they could kill nine American soldiers. Mr. President? Yes. I respect and appreciate your diplomacy in not yet asking me to release Juan Aguilar from prison. I'm not going to ask you, Miguel. I'm willing to do it at this point. Say that again? I'm willing to let Aguilar out in exchange for the hostages if you ask me to. Well, I appreciate your making that offer, but I don't think that's a very good idea. I agree with you, but I'm making the offer and I'm leaving it up to you. Okay. Thank you, Mr. President. Thank you, Mr. President. So, Josh and Donna, and I guess first the polling. Josh is doing some politicking of his own and he's trying to weigh the value of losing House seats as opposed to pushing the gun agenda. And this is kind of a very middle road tactic as well when you think about it, because while gun control is one of the issues that the White House still seems to want to use to affect change in policy, uh, Josh's job kind of requires him to think pretty much long term. He's got to think beyond this congressional term, because think about it. Losing those seats would only affect the president's next term, not this one. He's got these people here. So whether Josh is on board with the reelect Bartlett campaign or not, whether he's been included in any of these discussions with Toby and Leo, it doesn't really matter because nobody's ever indicated to him that there's any reason why they wouldn't run again. I'm assuming that just about everybody that works in this white house thinks that they would. So he's not really being affected by either Toby's policy or Abby's plea for Jed about the whole promise thing. He's just working on the, under the assumption that if he gets elected to the next term, he's going to need those same representatives working with him then. So he has to kind of weigh the political ramifications of that. Now, as for the Josh Donna slash Joey thing, I mean, this is really pushed forward by the conversation that Josh had with Sam earlier. Uh, I didn't include it in the clips, but I did have it in the quick jabs, or at least part of it. And, and, and finally, Josh just has to ask directly why Donna is saying this about him and, and Joey repeatedly. And, and she gives an answer, but it's really kind of a very stock answer, followed up by a joke more or less. Uh, I think I included her answer in the, in the quick jabs. But the qu- this question comes to mind. The fact that Josh acknowledges himself in this episode that he tries to sabotage Donna's dating, it makes you think back to the episode where he, he made her shorten her dinner plans, for one. 
Why does he expect her to act the same way? And let me ask you this too. Does the fact that Donna does actually play her answer the way she does point to us that Joey's assessment uh, of Donna pushing is actually correct? Obviously, we'll have more on that in just a little bit. Now, as for Ainsley, again, the whole meeting the president thing, that's kind of been the main storyline for, for Sam and Ainsley in the last episode and in this one. And I'm actually relieved that they had Ainsley be determined to make it right, because otherwise I'm not really certain the writers would have had anything else for Sam or Ainsley to do in this episode. Plus, I think that it would actually be true to Ainsley's character, who is actually more mortified by the fact that a president would think less of her than she is by the prospect of of trying to meet him a second time and more properly. I I included part of her plea from an earlier scene in the quick jabs, but I, I find it adorable that she is once again so frightened of talking to the president as the moment gets near and that she, she kind of follows her own prophecy again, uh, you know, making a fool of herself. But I think despite her kind of closet embarrassment there, she can, she can feel a little better this time around. I love, I love the way that Bartlett kind of really charmed her with the whole father thing, which was like, you know, I can't bring disgrace upon my father. And so that was, that was a perfect way uh, to kind of dispel all of that for Ainsley. Uh, plus, I mean, come on, Sam, who is usually the guy that's on the end of the jokes that Ainsley is getting in this episode, it's kind of cool to get to see him play cool guy, you know, quote unquote, cool guy while getting to razz somebody else a little bit. And that's not meant as mean spirited towards Ainsley or anything like that. I'm just saying it was, I bet it was even nice for Rob Lowe to not have to do the whole metaphorical stumbling around for an episode or two. I'm sure that was nice for him. And that whole treating Ainsley nice is really kind of a testament to Bartlett's ability to play nice, when you think about it, even, even in the face of some troubling circumstances as he's in the middle of right here. I mean, think about it. At that time, he's got a dangerous military operation going on. He's just been put off by his wife about something that is very serious, And I actually love that Abby has the ability to put her own issue aside because she sees that the country needs their president more than she needs her husband at that moment. And I know last episode I questioned whether their marriage had had gone through some of the cold spells that I imagine every White House has. Uh, I don't think there's really any doubt that by the end of this episode you see that they do love each other very much. But they also both know that there are bigger things at stake. And... She, Abby, I mean, clearly sees that. But Bartlett himself, I think he just wants to kind of get the uncomfortable conversation over with here because he's really kind of made up his mind anyway. And he just wants the uncomfortableness of it to wear off and the acceptance to begin, um, despite what he says to Abby later about the fact that he he wouldn't do consider without talking to her first. Uh, but I'll, I'll save that bit for when it comes up. He recovers from this conversation, and then he's nice to Ainsley, and then he gets the bad news, and and that's when he just can't take anymore. I mean, not only is he sickened by the loss of these military men, but he also still does have that Abby thing floating around in his brain, and he just can't hold all of that frustration in anymore. I I cut the parts out in, in the oval 
prior to him walking outside, but the whole disintegration of his ability to maintain control uh, while in the Oval Office is just brilliantly done by Martin Sheen. And one thing that you love about Bartlett is he tries to never, ever lose it in the Oval. He loses it, but he'll do his best to try and step outside of that office. Um, His respect for the office itself is is pretty awesome. Um, So by the time he is out on the portico and everything comes boiling out, that is just uh, a brilliant uh, display of of just complete disbelief and rage and, and everything that you would expect a president to feel in that moment of getting that news. And then you have to love Leo because he's really being a true chief of staff there. He He's the one who is taking all of the yelling and screaming and, and tries to respond with reason and not really apologetically either. I mean, he, he's fairly unapologetic. He's very Joe Friday, just the facts, ma'am, kind of way because he knows Bartlett. He knows Bartlett needs to get that frustration out of his system, and he's not going to incite the president anymore with any kind of inflammatory arguing about the failure because Bartlett is about to have a talk with another head of state, for one thing. So both Leo and Abby are trying to keep Bartlett focused in their own ways. And of course, Bartlett does have the ability to rein it in so that he can talk to this Colombian president, Santos. And really, the offer made is where the big at least political issue comes up that kind of really changes the course of the episode in terms of tone and in terms of uh, discussion points. And that issue, of course, is negotiating with terrorists or not. And that brings me to the third clip where staff members argue for or against asking Colombia to release Angular. Josh and Donna continue the debate. The president gets a briefing on the feasibility of military action and Abby and Jed finally talk about him running again. Sam, you give in to terrorist demands, and that's the ball game. I understand the principle, but there are real lives at stake. Uh, it's easy to stick the principle of nothing's at stake, Sam. Well, sir, let's argue about principles after these five guys get home. Juan Aguilar runs one of the largest drug cartels in the world. Sir? He has produced $15 billion worth of cocaine in two years. He's murdered or ordered the murder of eight Supreme Court justices, a pro-extradition prime minister, and three federal police officers in Bogota. And from his prison cell, I guarantee you, he orchestrated the kidnapping of five U.S. DEA agents and the killing of their rescuers. I believe he did as well, Mr. President, which is all the evidence you need that it couldn't matter less whether Juan Aguilar is in prison or not. I'm not letting him out. I'll share a cell with him before I let him out. I want military options. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. Josh, how is this not a no-brainer? Columbia? Yeah. You say get him home? Of course I say get him home. Who doesn't say get him home? That should be the person who has to make the phone call to the families. And who calls the families of the nine commandos who just died trying to save five guys? It turns out we could have freed six hours ago. That's not a good enough reason. The good enough reason is you give in to terrorists, it gives them a pretty good incentive to keep terrorizing. Not negotiating with them hasn't given them much of a disincentive. How do you know? You don't think they're going to kidnap another five people tomorrow morning and demand 12 months of free cable? So you give them free cable. How about the keys to the situation room? You draw a line. Where? She said about an hour. On the early numbers? Yeah. Yeah. Mr. President, uh, what would it take to wipe them out? The Frente? Yeah. What would it take? Mr. President, for the kind of victory Americans are used to, 
For the kind of victory Americans demand from a war, you need a 10 to 1 ratio. It was only after we built up a 10 to 1 ratio in the Gulf that we felt comfortable making a move. Fentech has 20,000 well-armed, well-trained soldiers, each of whom has a financial stake in heroin and cocaine. We need to put 200 to 300,000 men into a jungle war, and I think we'd lose as many as half. Half? Yes, sir. You really gotta ask yourself, what's the point in being a superpower anymore? I didn't make the decision to run again. Yes, you did. If we're gonna talk about this, let's talk about this. The moves over the last few weeks, the changes in last night's speech. This whole place is in re-election mode. That's what we do, Abby. We run for things. A president gets to govern for 18 months. We try to get people to vote for us, and in the process, we hope the people force us to do good things. We had a deal. Yes, we had a deal. Do you get that you have MS? Abby. Do you get that your own immune system is shredding your brain? And I can't tell you why. Do you have any idea how good a doctor I am and that I can't tell you why? I've had one episode in two years. Yes, but relapsing remitting MS can turn into secondary progressive MS, oftentimes 10 years after the initial diagnosis, which is exactly where we'll be in two years. Do you know what that's going to look like if it happens? I know what it's going to Fatigue. An inability to get through the day. Look. Memory lapses. Loss of cognitive function. Failure to reason. Failure to think clearly. And I can't tell you if it's going to happen. I don't know if it's going to get better. I don't know if it's going to get worse. But we had a deal. And that deal was how you justified keeping it a secret from the world. It's how you justified it to God. It's how you justified it to me. Miss Bartlett. Yeah. You sure you don't want me to stay? So while a lot of this talk of, of negotiating with terrorists is, is set up to comment on, on two wars that haven't turned out so well at the time, uh, the Vietnam War and the war on drugs, it is kind of scary to think that a real-life president would be faced with the prospect of, of going to a desert war just a little over six months after this episode aired. Now, this was by no means Sorkin giving us a look into the future or anything, but I think a lot of this hits home in a really uncomfortable way, even in today's world, because it's interesting to hear the arguments for or against from Sam and the president here. And Sam makes a very good case, at least for the circumstances of this particular case. On the other hand, Bartlett and Josh make very good cases for why going down that path might be a slippery slope. And where do you draw the line? is the big question, if you are going to go down this way. What disincentives are left once you negotiate with the first terrorists? And the ending of this episode actually does its best to kind of come up with a compromise for what is really an impossible question, but it never truly answers the debate one way or another. It's also a very polarizing discussion if you're looking at it from the time that it aired, pre-9-11, I think. And the prospect of sending in military to fight a war that could easily turn as disastrous as it could be successful is another thing to think about in our post 9-11 and uh, Iraq wars. As for the thing with Abby, when Abby calls Jed out on lying about not running and his response to that, that's really where I get on the notion that he's already been on board with Toby and Leo and, and whoever else is now in the committee. 
But that I don't know if that really means that he's going on like completely wholeheartedly either, though. I mean, Bartlett is faced with a tough choice, and he has to go down the political route that Toby and Leo are leading him on, really just to be able to keep his options open. It's not so much that he's decided to run, as it is he has to keep his options open, I guess, um, so that he actually can talk to Abby about running again. And as for Abby herself, I mean, on a first watch, her talk about where they were in the progression of Bartlett's MS, that was pretty compelling to me, and I thought that uh, the actress did a fantastic job. And it's still a very powerful scene, no matter how many times I've seen the episode. And really, to see how those kind of scenarios that she mentions are, are played out or not played out well further down the line in the series... Um, I think that makes it interesting for rewatchers to come back to this episode and, and think hard about everything that is lined out in what Abby says. Uh, I don't think I'm going to have a spoiler section this episode, so I'll just leave it at that. And rewatchers, I'm pretty sure you know what I mean. While first-time watchers, you've all got a lot to look forward to finding out what I mean, I guess. And again, in the end, even though I left it out of the clip, what you have is that the root of all of this is love. And I wonder if one reason Abby is so angry at Bartlett for deciding he wants to run again is because, I mean, she's outlined a nightmare scenario that she might have to live in where she's in a White House rather than being able to be alone with her family um, if, his degree, if his disease does you know, digress, if it gets worse. But if he runs and he wins again, I mean, there's always going to be these times where she has to do what she's been trying to do since the Colombian crisis started. And that is to try and back away so that he can focus, except she's thinking, well, I have to help him focus more. It, what can make him focus more if it does turn into secondary progressive? And just remember that she understands the weight of the decisions that Bartlett is trying to make. And the very thing that she describes here about second, secondary progressive is that he might not have the ability to focus well in the future. So what you have to ask yourself is, is she in her own small way kind of looking out for the country as well as for her own husband? You have to ask yourself as a leader who might not be able to think clearly all the time an acceptable thing for the country. So that really illuminates why this is such a big issue. And we're going to have to see what comes of it as we go along. And that brings me to the fourth clip where Josh is disappointed by the poll results and he and Joey talk about the numbers and Donna. And Leo cautions the president about military action in Colombia. Son of a bitch. I'm sorry. Five-day waiting period, that's all. A person can't wait five days to buy a gun? Someone needs a gun right now, right this second. Isn't that something the public should be concerned about? On the other hand, taking the feelings of gun owners into account, if you've got to shoot somebody, it probably isn't something that can wait. Yeah. You mind if I take off? What time is it? 2 a.m. All right, we'll call that a full day. But come in early tomorrow. Yeah. You all right getting home? Yeah. Good night, guys. Can I? They're just preliminary numbers. They're not going to change. No. Five-day waiting period. It tested well nationwide. Yeah. 
58%. I didn't need nationwide. I needed those five districts. Now we're going to have to dial down the gun rhetoric in the Midwest. Why not dial it up? Because these numbers just told us that you don't know what these numbers just told you. I'm an expert. I don't know what these numbers just told you. We know. We? Numbers don't lie. They lie all the time. If you polled 100 Donnas and asked them if they think we should go out, you'd get a high positive response. But the poll wouldn't tell you. It's because she likes you. And she knows it's beginning to show, and she needs to cover herself with misdirection. Believe me when I tell you that's not true. You say that these numbers mean dial it down. I say they mean dial it up. You haven't gotten through. There are people you haven't persuaded yet. These numbers mean dial it up. Otherwise, you're like the French radical, watching a crowd run by and saying, there go my people. I must find out where they're going so I can lead them. I fought a jungle war. I'm not doing it again. If I could put myself anywhere in time, it would be the cabinet room on August 4th, 1964, when our ships were attacked by North Vietnam in the Tonkin Gulf. I'd say, Mr. President, don't do it. You're considering authorizing a massive commitment of troops and throwing in our lot with torturers and panderers, leaders without principle and soldiers without conviction, with no clear mission and no end in sight. This war's at home. Its casualties are in our prisons and not our hospitals. The amount of money the American government is spending in Colombia is the exact same amount American consumers are spending buying drugs from Colombia. We're funding both sides of this war and we'll never win it that way. Leo, I can't possibly reverse no our position. I can't possibly reverse our position on negotiating. No one's gonna know. You don't make another phone call that happens someplace else. Santos is going to be the one to let him out. There were just 14 people in the room who heard Santos make me the offer. Those 14 people keep bigger secrets than this. You know what Truman Capote said was the bad part about living outside the law? What? You no longer have the protection of it. What's to stop me? 200 CIA operatives, black ops. 200 guys with no wives, no kids, no parents. I send 200 operatives down there. Monday morning, I read in the paper, Juan Aguilar is dead. What's to stop me? All right. Donna finally outed. And in a way, I think Josh outed himself earlier in the episode when he admitted to Sam that he sabotages Donna's dates sometimes. But again, there's a slippery slope of its own kind. Uh, in terms of uh, Josh and Donna dating. I mean, let's think about it. They worked together very closely, like, for long periods of time. This isn't like Josh, if he were to date Joey, where two people could still maintain their own sense of autonomy, uh, at least in their workplaces, even if they did have to work together occasionally. But instead, here, Josh and Donna, I mean, they practically live together in that office as it is. And I can tell you, as a musician who has worked in bands where two people are dating each other or even married, 
I mean, I have seen people be able to handle that very well and and separate kind of their professional and personal lives very admirably. But I've also seen it go the other way. And I, I've seen how that can make it a miserable experience for everyone as, around them as well as themselves. So my question to you, Donna and Josh shippers, is this. Do you really want them taking that chance at this point in time? Do you think that maybe that is what has held them both back to this point or what might hold them back in the future? And Josh wants to deny these truths that Joey pretty much presents about Donna. Uh, in fact, he's pretty emphatic about it, but I, I tend to think that Joey is exactly correct in her assessment. And as for Joey's advice about the numbers, I mean, it was good to hear someone associated with this White House, even loosely, actually stick to the whole let Bartlett be Bartlett agenda. I mean, reach the people who frown on your policies by engaging them not by discarding the idea. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Ever since Toby and, and Leo formed this whole reelect committee, it seems that everyone is in reelection mode, even if they're not aware of it. And as I've mentioned before, that's in direct contrast to what a lot of fans loved about the end of season one. So it's nice to hear a callback to that from Joey. I understand the overall state of the party is going to be one of Josh's responsibilities in his position. And, and we've seen him do things before to ensure that the party and the president come out, you know, quote unquote, on the right side of an issue. But Joey's point is this, isn't it equally important for a party to define itself and convince people why they are right so that public opinion allows their party members to both vote in the way that the people want them to and satisfy the party agenda. And a couple of things in the Leo and President stuff that are just kind of a little bit of fluff on the top of, of the core of the conversation. Uh, first off, the name Santos. Now, rewatchers who have seen the whole series will recognize that name. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is that Sorkin actually likes to use names over and over again. There's another case of another presidential candidate uh, that was, I think, a senator or a representative or something that was mentioned earlier this season or the season prior. Suddenly he's a presidential candidate, and they're not the same people. Um, Sorkin just likes to use the same names. And the second thing that is kind of fluff is the whole 14 people in the room keep bigger secrets. If you think back to Abby's talk to the anesthesiologist in the first episode of this season, she told him that 14 people knew about the MS before the anesthesiologist. Now, I had a hard time in this particular episode hearing whether Leo said there is 14 people who keep bigger secrets or those 14 people keep bigger secrets. I think it was the latter, uh, meaning that it was unrelated or coincidence. But it really wasn't a coincidence or, uh, you know, unrelated from, let's call it an artistic standpoint. It, it's very similar to what we musicians call a motive, which is a little collection of notes that repeat throughout a piece of music. And the whole 14 people is a motive that works beautifully here that keeps the MS issue that Bartlett and Abby just discussed in your mind, even if it's only subliminally. And this is one of the reasons why Sorkin's writing 
is often spoke as being rhythmic or musical. Because even using the Santos name or other names multiple times for different characters is its own kind of motive as well. And as for the issue itself, we've seen Leo push and push and push on military action for the last few episodes. You know, from the whole missile shield to the rescue op. But there is a step that is too far even for Leo. And the prospect of a jungle war is that step too far. And his hypothetical about talking to Johnson about Vietnam, it very much reflects, I think, the sentiments of those who opposed the second Iraq war and continued military presence in the Middle East today. And I'm not saying that you should change your opinion on on what has happened in the last few years just because Leo says this. I'm just pointing out that Sorkin knows what he's doing in being able to encapsulate an argument or a position on war where you can see the quote-unquote applicability, again, the the thing that J.R.R. Tolkien uses, rather than look at it as an allegory, as a one-to-one. You don't have to look about the talk about Vietnam as being a one-to-one to to wars prior to that, or even wars in the future of that. But you can apply what is said, applicability again, to positions on what has happened in the last 10 years. And then there's Bartlett's statement about just taking Aguilar out with a black op. And let's look at the way Bartlett has handled the loss of men before. I mean, think back to season one and the proportional response episode. He had wanted a very all-encompassing strike against a group that shot down his doctor's plane, right? And now he's actually considering a jungle war with massive casualties over the loss of nine military men. So you have to ask yourself, has Bartlett really learned anything? Or do you think taking Aguilar out is a proportional response with the CIA thing? Perhaps so. Just thought I'd point that out. And also, this black op assassination may or may not be something that happens all the time in the real world. I mean, I wouldn't know. But I can guarantee you that while this idea is something we're hearing of for the first time in this show, it probably won't be the last. And I think you rewatchers know what I mean. And you first-time watchers uh, have some interesting episodes to look forward to in the future. And that does it for that clip. So let's go to our last clip where Bartlett does make a decision about Aguilar and then goes to Dover to see the bodies come home while CJ briefs the press on what has happened. We lost this one, Mr. President. It was bad intelligence, and we lost this one. He was the Queen's Rook. That's why I couldn't trade the Bishop. It was over six moves ago. Arrange for their immediate release. Yes, sir, Mr. President. If they so much as experience turbulence on their way out. Yes, sir. I want to go to Dover later tonight. Yes, sir. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. President. Folks, take your seats, please. The briefing will start now. Folks, can you take your seats? 
Good evening. Thank you for coming back so late. I want now to fill you in on some events that have taken place in the last 24 hours. When I'm through, there'll be representatives from the Pentagon, State Department, and Justice Department who will continue with your questions. Yesterday at approximately 8 p.m. Eastern Time, five agents from the DEA were taken hostage in the Putumayo region of Colombia by members of the Frente. Hold your question. Hostages are out. The demand I'll call their families after prisoner whose name we're not releasing at this time. President Miguel Santos acting on his own authority. And I guess there's not too much to talk about in this particular clip, except, you know, that the moral of the story that you get in every Sorkin episode, uh, it's Leo's turn to do this. And, and, and I think Leo's talk did touch back to the larger theme of the whole scenario that Bartlett outlined in his talk with Sam and Josh at the breakfast. The message really is that drug use is a domestic problem, not a cartel problem, and it's a medical problem not a legal problem. They're saying that no matter what you do, no matter how illegal you make it, no matter how much you try to limit the supply, addiction is definitely a medical problem. And you can fall on whatever side of that argument you wish. I'm not going to propose one way or the other. Uh, I don't want to think for you. So uh, I'm not going to say that just because, again, Leo says something that it's what we should all listen to because some of us disagree about things. The other aspect of the ending is this. Yes, with the reporters jumping all over CJ before she can even finish her statement, everything that more or less happened in the State of the Union, from Sloan to the contents of the speech itself, is going to be yesterday's news. Now, there might still be some things come up regarding it, uh, because good press people don't let anything go. But it certainly isn't going to be the main focus for a while, at least as far as the majority of the country would be concerned. And that's it for my talk about the episode, except for my rating, which is next. As I say every week, just to try and get you to go to the website so that you might look up back episodes and other things on the website itself, I do have a special 10-point rating scale, which you can find at sorkincast.wordpress.com. There, plug over. Uh, and here is my rating. I mean, there's lots of good stuff in this app, and it, and it really takes off in a completely different direction from the end of the last episode uh, as you go through this one. And that's a great demonstration of how quickly things can change for a White House. And yet, even though it does change directions it did still manage to check off the boxes that were still open in the previous episode, or at least seemingly so, like Sloan, like Ainsley, like Josh and Donna. Um, 
I still wasn't quite as into this episode as I was in the last one, though, because I thought the last one set everything up so well. I'm, I'm not sure why I wasn't quite as invested. Uh, I, I just wasn't quite as grabbed by it all. But it's still a great app. And last week, I think I went in the nines. This week, I'll go a very high eight. Let's say 8.8 for this week. And that's it for this particular episode. Next week, we're reviewing Season 2, Episode 15, Ellie. And you can contact the podcast by sending an email to sorkincast at gmail.com with your own thoughts about this episode. Or you can call 314-669-1840 and leave a voicemail. Or you can tweet at SorkinCast on Twitter. Also, don't forget to use those contact links to get me your feedback for any Season 2 West Wing episode by no later than July 12th, 2016. Uh, that'll be my cutoff point when then I will record a feedback podcast uh, which will be released the next week. It will also include our West Wing Awards for Season 2. So if you're taking the time to send me an email about an episode, also take the time to think about your favorite episode and your least favorite episode of Season 2, or your favorite and least favorite scene, or your favorite and least favorite main character, or your favorite and least favorite guest star, or all of those things. Uh, if you're going to nominate one, you might as well nominate them all, right? And uh, once again, thanks for joining me, and uh, we'll hopefully we'll see you next week. Take care. Find all of the back episodes, links, and more information at sorkincast.wordpress.com. Leave the podcast a written review at our iTunes or Stitcher store pages. To submit feedback, send emails to sorkincast at gmail.com or call 314-669-1840. The Sorkin cast is a member of the Rewatching Good TV network.